been casually mocked from the side. Um, well, welcome again to Forest Hill Community Church. If you're here for the first time or you haven't been for a while, you are in particular welcome. It's lovely to see some um, fresh-looking faces alongside the tired old ones. Um, so that's really good. Um, we are going to do quite a lot this morning. Um, you'll be pleased to hear. We're beginning a new series as a church. Yay! Can I get an amen? Um, and we're going to spend 10 weeks going through the Torah. Who knows what the Torah is? Woo! 10 weeks going through the first five books of the Bible. And it's going to be a right shindig because there's a lot of fun stuff um, in there. So let's have a little think for a moment. What is the Torah? Um, the Torah um, literally is the Hebrew word. It means law or instruction or the way or how to be or whatever. Um, and it's got a wide range of meanings that we're going to come to. Um, but basically what you need to know is it refers to the Pentateuch. Ah, that clarifies everything. What's the Pentateuch? Pentateuch literally means five books, and it means the first five books in your Bible, which are, go for it. Well, yeah, I think some of you got it right. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, uh, and Deuteronomy. And you'll see it referred to as a lot of things throughout the Bible. Sometimes it's called the Law of Moses. Sometimes it's just called the Book of the Law or the Law. Um, and the Bible seems to really love um, the Torah. seems to really, really love it being there. So you get, um, do you know Psalm 119, right? It's like the longest psalm in the Bible. And it's just a love song to these five books in the Bible. Now that can seem a little bit strange to some of us. I was listening to um, some teaching on this, and one of the guys who I listened to referred to um, the Torah as being like, you know when you go to a big family gathering, and at every big family gathering, there's those relatives you get on really well with, and then there's that weird uncle. And the weird uncle is like, you know, he's part of the family, so he's kind of there, and it's cool, and you know, you, like, you wouldn't want him to not be there. But at the same time, he's kind of awkward, and you spend the time trying to avoid him, um, and avoid getting into weird conversations. Do you know what I mean? Um, and he was like, our, react, our attitude towards these five books of the Bible um, can be a little bit like that weird uncle. Because the Torah, as well as containing some really nice stories, like when God wipes out the world and saves Noah on the ark, uh, nice and easy, um, there's also really hard and challenging stuff in there, isn't it? Like a guy picks up a stick and gets stoned to death for it. Or like a bunch of people um, get told to murder a whole bunch of other people. Um, or like... Um, uh, God sends a plague of snakes and then a plague of disease and then a plague of whatever. And it seems really violent and difficult um, and also seems to uh, sometimes it, it can come across like it affirms attitudes that we want to kind of distance ourselves from. So it kind of seems like maybe the Torah affirms kind of this old patriarchal mindset or um, doesn't it seem to affirm sexism? Sexism, uh, genocide, um, murder, capital punishment, uh, intolerance of everyone else except yourself. Um, and so those are kind of things that we don't really love, aren't they, uh, attitudes? Um, and so aren't those things in there? So we have this kind of weird relationship with the books. Personally, I find them all quite easy, um, except, except numbers. Numbers drives me crazy. Uh, because it's just like, it's just so, it seems so irrationally violent and difficult. Um, but, but here's the thing. 
Um, as Christians, we do believe that the whole Bible is given to us as a gift from God that is instruction for life, and that is his word to us. Isn't that cool? And so our job is to come to this with an open mind and ask the question, what is God saying? What is God saying to us through it? Um, in fact, Jesus comes along and he's like, hey, the book of the law is so cool because it all points to me. It's all anticipating me. It's all crying out um, for me. And we're going to look at that. And actually, what I think we're going to see is that every major theme in Scripture finds its home and its birth in these first five books. So if you think about creation, um, major theme in Scripture starts in the, in the Torah, with the creation story, or the idea of covenant, or the idea of the promised land, the idea of the people of God, the idea of Sabbath rest, the idea of worship and sacrifice and sin and guilt and getting right with God and forgiveness um, and the law, how, how do we live our lives under God's rule, like loving God and loving your neighbor? Loving your neighbor as yourself is actually in the Torah, um, which is really cool. We think it's that, that's just from Jesus, but it's actually from Leviticus, of all places. Um, and like the tabernacle and the dwelling of God among us and how we deal with and how we process the presence of God, um, that's all there too. And the priesthood and how we can be priests, but what the priesthood means, that's there too. The idea of exile um, and not being home, not being where we want to get to, that's there as well. In fact, the whole of the Torah isn't where it wants to get to. Um, it stops short of entering the promised land because the whole thing um, enters into our anticipation, our longing uh, for something better. And the idea of redemption from slavery, which is a good thing, right? Um, freedom from slavery. Does God hate slavery? Yeah. So that's in the Torah. Good. Um, and faith and works and all this kind of stuff are all there. So that's really, really, really good. But beyond that, so those are all kind of Bible themes and kind of religious language. The Torah also relates so closely to our human experience, just our everyday human experience. So if you want to know about dysfunctional families and problematic marriages, the Torah is full <laughs> of dysfunctional families and messed up marriages. If you want to know um, about oppressive governments and systems and what God thinks of them, it's all over there. Does our nation and our world need that? Yeah, so we need the Torah. Um, faith and doubt and how those two things intertwine in the life of a believer. It's core to what the Torah is. Um, like genuine physical hunger, needing food, wanting parties in the Torah. Good. And the beauty of being a human and, and the joy of existence coupled with the desperate struggle of being a human and the pain of existence in the Torah. Uh, the, war, the idea of war and violence and peace and how those two kind of reconcile is in the Torah. Love is in the Torah. Personal value, like what am I worth to God? It's there. Um, the idea of reconciliation between people and between us and God and that, that craving that we have for right relationship, it's all over it. And even, fortunately, what to do if you have a particularly nasty case of D&D. Um, it's in the Torah, which is just really, really good. Um, to such the point that a guy called Ben Bagbag, um, which is just a great name, isn't it? Everyone say Ben Bagbag. Ben Bagbag. He's going to be our teacher for the next couple of minutes. Uh, he was a, a, a rabbi, I think around like the first century, 
Um, so this is a couple of thousand years old. And he talked about the Torah, and he said this. So let's think about this just for a minute. He said, turn the Torah over and over, for everything is in it. Look into it. Grow old and worn over it, and never move away from it, for you will find no portion better than it. I love that idea in that second line. Turn it over and over, because everything is there. And that's what the Jewish people genuinely believe about these five books, that these five books contain basically the core of everything humanity is and what we need to survive and what we need to know God. Um, Now, of course, when someone sees a phrase like that, what you get is 2,000 years worth of commentary about can we actually know every scientific equation just by reading the Torah? Can we know the, uh, the science of space flights just from reading Genesis uh, through to the number uh, Deuteronomy? And the answer is, quite obviously, that's not the point. <laughs> um, for example, um, you won't find Southern Rail's timetable um, in the Torah. It's not there. <laughs> But (laughs) what the Torah will give you is a theological reason about why the trains are always late, why there is a fundamental brokenness in the system, why they always smell, and why no one ever talks to anyone else on the train. You will find, you see what I mean, like the detail of life, but then actually the heart of it is all here. The heart of human brokenness is all there, such that whatever we do, the Torah speaks to it. That's the heart of, that's the conviction of uh, the Jewish faith. Isn't that incredible? Um, Now, obviously, the the phrase, you will find no portion better than it, we can kind of affirm and kind of deny that, can't we, um, as Christians? Because we know that actually the Torah is pointing towards um, its fulfillment in Jesus. But I don't want to make that too easy, so let's just stick with it for the moment. Good, good, good. Okay, let's go. Um, We are going to... Look at just at a few chapters of Genesis this morning. We're going to look at Genesis 1 to 11. Not many. Uh, it's not much in there. It's okay. Just, you know, the creation, the fall, the flood, the, um, and loads of family trees, and Noah, and all this kind of stuff. So, uh, is everyone ready? Good. Um, uh, wh- obviously, what we're not going to be able to do in 10 weeks, because that, that, that's five books, right? So, that's half a book a week. Uh, We're not going to be doing, like, really deep textual study most of the time. Basically, our aim is to help us as a body to know how we can read these books, how we can approach them, and how we can understand them for ourselves. So I'm going to try and avoid all the difficult issues, just a heads up in advance. Um, I'm very aware of how many potential issues there are in Genesis 1 to 11 uh, that I could get stuck on. And I'm just going to take the coward's way out and try and skirt over them casually without you noticing. Is that okay? Um, and if you, uh, if you want to fight me on something, uh, we can do that afterwards and I'll, I'll enjoy it. But I'm not going to do it um, in this talk. And if I do get stuck and start babbling on about some crazy issue, uh, like who the Nephilim are or something like that, uh, just move me on, okay? Because um, it won't do us any good at all. Right. Genesis 1 to 11. Um, let's start by reading some of Genesis 1. Has anyone got a Bible, by the way? It might help in the next 10 weeks, uh, hopefully, uh, to have a Bible with you. Uh, I'm going to read from the NRSB and slightly edit it to make it say what I want it to say. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless, and darkness covered the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God, swept over the face of the waters. Now that's the start of the Bible. What a cool start. In the beginning, God created the heavens and, and the earth. And then there's just this flood of creation. There's this flood of goodness as God speaks and stuff happens. God speaks and stuff happens. So as Jenny read earlier, God said, let there be light and light happened. God said, let there be separation between the waters and the sea and that happened. God said, let there be livestock and that happened and plants and the sun and moon. And there's just this overflow, what's happened here, of creative, um, of creative kind of giving of God. And it's really, really cool. In fact, God calls it good, doesn't he? Um, and the word good is tov. Now, I'm going to write that up here, nice and big. Tov. Um, or good. And we'll come back to that word. What I'm going to use this, word, this board for is that there are some themes that, like, I want to trace some of the themes and keywords that come up, even just in these early chapters, that are going to hang with us the whole way through the whole rest of the Bible. Is that Okay. Uh, so good. So carry that in your mind and have like a little arrow going forward there. That's good. Um, it's actually quite a long walk. Uh, so, uh, but in fact, how many times does God say that it's good? Many times. I like that. <laughs> he says it, ooh, seven times. Ooh, any guesses? Seven is a massively significant number in Hebrew, uh, and it means like it's the number of perfection, the number of fullness. So God is saying that creation is good, but that creation is totally good. And I love that. I love that the whole story of the Bible begins with a fundamental affirmation of two things. Firstly, that the creator is good in that he pours out good, right? There's nothing bad here. It's just all pouring out good. And this all comes from him, and there's such an overwhelming abundance of, of, of goodness flowing from him. But secondly, and this is crucial for the church, that creation itself is good. And that what God has made, that physical matter, that time and reality and light and the movement of the planets and our own planet is good. And it's a fundamental affirmation of stuff, of reality, and Christians have really struggled with that um, over the centuries. I know that you guys don't at all, you love reality, um, but there's been a temptation in the church to kind of ignore physical life as kind of this kind of thing that holds us back, but the spiritual is where it's at, and Genesis says, no, 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 they're one and the same, they're one and the same, our physical existence is important, and it's so, so good, and then you get all these other things emerging, like the fact that God has a break on day seven, isn't that cool, and that God builds a, a rhythm of work and rest into the very n fabric of creation, so there's this Sabbath, uh, this seventh day of rest, that's going to be a theme that comes up an awful lot, and I love that it's not just a rule that comes up later, but it's something that God does first, isn't that cool? So that when God says to us, hey, take a break, he's actually saying, I'm inviting you into my rest. I'm inviting you into my rhythm. I'm inviting you into the way that I do things, into my rhythm of being. Really cool. Um, not just that, but God also blesses everything. I'm, I'm aware that I'm getting a bit confused here. Go back. Sorry, this is why I shouldn't be in charge. Can someone else do this? Uh, you've got a bit more. 
to anyone listening to this on the recording, don't worry. Okay, great. It's basically tap. Can you do that? Let's have the first one. There we go. Now stop there for a moment. Um, Okay, uh, but then God also just loves to bless it, doesn't he? Um, so he's not just like, now be good, creation, but it, come, it starts with blessing, doesn't it? So he blesses uh, the animals and says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seeds and let birds multiply on the earth. And then he uh, creates m- man um, and he says the same thing to them, be fruitful and multiply, which means, we'll come back to that. But uh, let's write down fruitful and multiply because that just comes up over and over again in Scripture. And that I also love because God wants just more for us. He wants us to become more. Um, People talk a lot about order when they talk about God's will for the universe, that God wants there to be this kind of order in the universe, which is fine. I don't have an intrinsic problem with that, except what my mind does when I hear the word order is like this kind of 1984-style like there shall be order, do exactly as I say, don't step out of the box. But that's not what we see in this chapter. What we see in this chapter is God creating and then saying, guys, go for it. Go for it. Go fill the earth. Go do stuff. Go explore. Go inhabit. Go find cool places to live. Go find cool things to build. And so God also affirms that part of who we are. Isn't that cool? Wow, I've managed to kill you all already. Yeah, agree. Um, <laughs> but then there's the question, how is God, God going to exercise his rule and reign on the earth that he's created? And that is where it gets even more exciting. Because um, in Genesis 1.27, it says this. Then God's, oh, let's go to 26. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image. Wow. <laughs> wow. Um, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. There's lots of creeps on the earth. Um, So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That together, male and female, represent the image of God. Isn't that that's so important, isn't it? Um, step one, together we represent the image of God. Um, God is not a man. <laughs> Amen. Praise the Lord. Yeah, and it's such a good thing. Um, but <laughs> anyway, uh, let's move on. Uh, so God blessed them. Oh, so why did he create them? He created them. He created us. He creates Adam, humankind, the word I read there is just the word Adam, which means man, which means humankind, obviously. Um, uh, And God created us to actually do stuff, to have a purpose, to be useful, to bring his kingdom on the earth and to exercise God's will on the earth. The way he puts it in chapter 2, verse 15, is that it's like this is, uh, there's this garden to tend. And he says, "I, I want man, God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And then um, that's all really, really, really good. So uh, there's this idea of humanity as being God's kind of, God's way of, of, of bringing his kingdom on the earth. So I'm just going to write humanity, but I want, uh, it's not just humanity, but it's 
as God's means. That's good. Um, good, 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 good. And then there's this tree, isn't there? Well, there's two trees. What are the trees? Yes, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And we're just going to put trees here because tr- they are both going to come up again, aren't they? Um, now, does it stay good for long? No, because God says to the man, listen, great, hey, here's great news. You can eat of any tree, any tree you like, and all the trees are good for food, and all the trees are great and lovely, but there's one, one, one prohibition. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And oh my gosh, how quick it goes downhill. It's really depressing how quickly it goes downhill, isn't it? That like Genesis 3 is where everything goes wrong. You're like, come on, can't we just have like, like a honeymoon chapter? Like just kind of, let's chill out and enjoy this for a bit before we screw everything up kind of chapter. Um, and you know it must be, it's like, the, well, it's like the bit at the beginning of a horror film. I know none of you watch horror films, but where there's this lovely happy family or this lovely happy group of friends and it's sunny and it's beautiful and they're off on holiday and they find this lovely place to stay on holiday and it's just gorgeous and what could ever, but you know this is going to last three minutes and then it's going to go horribly wrong and then it's going to torture me for two hours. You just kind of know that in your heart. And this is exactly like that. And you know it must have been quick because God has just told them to be fruitful and multiply. And they're standing in around in the garden with not much to do, naked. So, but they haven't had kids yet. So it can't have been long. That's basically my, um, like it must have happened quite quick because I don't think it would have taken long. So, um, uh, but you know what happens. You know what happens. There's this serpent, this enemy of God who comes and the enemy of God corrupts the words of God um, in, in Eve's mind, in the woman's mind. Um, and says, did God really say, and puts doubt fundamentally, I mean, you, do, how many of you know the story? Quite a lot? I hope most of you know the story. Um, if you don't, basically it all goes horribly wrong. Uh, the serpent says, eat the fruit, what could possibly go wrong? God's being a killjoy, um, and he just doesn't want you to be cool and to enjoy life and stuff like that. And so they eat the fruit, and sure enough, they realize that they are naked um, which before wasn't a problem, but now they're embarrassed about it. Now they have this thing called shame, which has then been a problem for the human race ever since. Anyone ever felt shame? Stinks, doesn't it? Pretty awful. Um, and so that's what happens. But then there's this really beautiful thing where, and you know, and there are consequences to that, and God curses um, the ground. He says it's gonna be, life's going to be tough. Your relationship's going to be tough. You've actually fundamentally broken something by disobeying me. You've fundamentally broken our relationship, your relationship with each other, and your relationship with the ground. Um, I'm getting a bit stuck on this chapter, but you know what I mean. Um, and, but then, then he does this really beautiful thing where God sews them clothes. Like, it's just like an aside that, the, that it doesn't particularly need to say that. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, it, God could be like, make your own damn clothes. <laughs> but it's God has the tenderness to knit together clothes for their brokenness. And so they see a side of him that they wouldn't have seen if they hadn't messed up. Isn't that cool? Um, Richard Rohr says it like this, God even uses our pain and shame to lead us closer to God's loving heart. It's just such a beautiful little detail about the kind of God that we worship, that he uses the brokenness and the mess up to do something uh, 
uh, beautiful in our lives. Now, there's a few little threads that happen here, and then we need to move on quick. Um, The first is the idea of presence with God and exile from God. Presence and exile. So what happens to them afterwards? They get cast out of the garden, right? So they have to leave the garden. They can't go back. Um, The garden represents presence with God. And this is the first exile um, from the presence of God. Um, There are other themes as well, like um, God gives this promise, doesn't he? Um, That there's going to be this enmity between the woman and the serpent and between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed. Now, there's loads of family trees all through this part of Genesis. And I think they're there because they're, they're encouraging us to ask this question, when is this seed going to come? When's this child of the woman going to come? So there's, there's going to be the seed who's going to come and defeat the serpent one day. Now, there's so much more there, and you can, can look into it for yourself. Um, but there's also this mercy of God. That's lovely. Now, Next story, Um, it all gets much, much better, Uh, praise the Lord, uh, when Eve has two kids, and they just have a lovely relationship and live happily ever after. Um, No, we get another depressing story, don't we? Um, Cain and Abel, and Cain, of course, kills Abel um, in the field because Cain is jealous of Abel. and jealous that God looked on his sacrifice and not his, and he doesn't know how to handle his anger, and so he kills his brother. And so again, you get this judgment from God, which is you're going to have to leave this place and go somewhere else, but then you also get the mercy of God. As Cain is like, man, my punishment is more than I can bear, and anyone who finds me will kill me, um, as I, if I'm a wanderer on the earth. And God says, okay, let's mitigate that. I'm going to put a mark on you to protect you. Isn't that lovely? Cain has just taken his brother's life. Justice would be God saying, right, I'm going to finish you off right now. Let's start again. Clean slate. Come on, let's go. Um, Adam, be fruitful and multiply. Um, But instead, it's God saying, actually, Cain, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to love you uh, regardless um, and he says, whoever kills Cain, will, um, will, there'll be vengeance on him sevenfold. So there's this idea of vengeance built in. Now, what we basically get over the next few chapters is the same old rubbish. And there's this escalation as humans multiply and increase. There's this escalation and escalation and escalation of basically violence and stupidity. Um, And so you get this guy called Lamech who comes along a little while later. Um, I don't know if it's the right way to pronounce it, but I like to emphasize lame um, because he's a bit of an idiot. Um, And he's uh, he's got these two wives and he kind of like is like, yeah, these are my wives. Keep off. Um, Which, you know, is an okay thing to think, I think. Um, But he says, Ada and Zilla, that's his wives, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me. That's not very nice. Um, uh, I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, 77-fold. And really that represents the direction of humanity through these chapters towards violence, towards wickedness, towards, hey, let's escalate this fight. No, I'm going to destroy your country first. That kind of stuff. Not that we ever have that um, in our world now. Um, And you see this escalation of violence 
and wickedness and pain to the point that when you get to Genesis 6, this is the story. Um, Genesis 6, verse 5. I've just skipped straight past the weird bit. Um, So the Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil all the time. Now, that's about as strong as that sentence could possibly be, isn't it? God looks at humanity and says they never think anything nice any of the time. The thought of all their hearts is evil all the time. And the Lord was sorry that he'd made them, and it grieved him to his heart. So then we get the story of Noah. And the story of Noah is basically, um, have you ever had a computer that crashes? Have you ever watched the IT crowd? The phrase, have you tried turning it off and on again? The story of Noah is God turning it off and on again, basically. Does that make sense? It's it's the world crashes, it all goes crazy. Let's try pulling out the plug, plugging it back in, and seeing if it works again. Now, I think God knew that it wasn't going to, but that's basically what happens. So God wipes out everyone and everything except Noah and one set of animals, or seven sets of clean animals, um, which he takes on the ark. Um, But the problem is there is you know if you have a computer that crashes a lot, you know that the restart thing is going to work for about five or ten minutes, but that the problem is actually still in the computer. You know that feeling? Now you have to keep saving your work every four seconds because you're worried because your computer might at any moment, if it's running Windows Vista or something like that. And you see, you can temporarily solve the problem by wiping it out, by wiping it and starting again, restarting, starting again, restarting, starting again. But really, if you want to solve the problem long-term, you need a new machine, you need a Mac. <laughs> and what God, is, what God, I think, is showing us in the story of Noah is that restarting isn't the solution, that we need a deeper solution. Because um, actually what happens after the story of Noah, they come off the ark and you get this renewal of the promises of Genesis 1 and 2. As God kind of says to, to Noah again and his sons, uh, be fruitful and multiply, rule over. I give you all the animals, all the stuff, everything. They become um, uh, carnivores as well. Not carnivores, but they can eat meat as well at this point. So it's like a bonus. Um, so there's extra help there. You can eat the animals too. Um, and, and God gives them all of this. And then it says Noah planted a garden, which is cool, because who else started in a garden? Do you see? So you've got this young family. You've got this blessing from God to be fruitful and multiply. You've got this garden. And then the original garden ended up with its inhabitants being naked and ashamed. Where's the new garden going to end up? That's the question that's in our minds when we, when we read uh, this bit as they come off the ark, as God's made this covenant um, with his people, which incidentally is the first time God makes a covenant, which is cool, isn't it? Let me just write that word up. Um, covenant. I wonder if that's ever going to come. Covenant. Come up again. Um, good. Uh, and God makes this covenant. Oh, yeah. Um, but then, do you remember the story? Noah gets drunk and is lying naked in his tent, um, which a lot of people blame Noah for. I don't think there's loads in the text to say that Noah necessarily did anything awful in doing this. Like, I think the problem is his son who walks in. So Ham walks in, who's his son, sees him naked, thinks, (laughs) dad's naked, um, and then goes and tells his brothers. Now, his brothers deal with it in a very kind way, and they back in gently with a sheet. You know the story. Um, And they cover up their father's nakedness. But basically... um, But with Ham uncovering his father's nakedness, 
that would have brought massive shame. And so what the deal is, is is this second garden, is this second lot of blessing, is this second creation going to go somewhere different to the first, or is it going to end up with people being naked and ashamed in a garden? Oh, rats. It's day one, and we're naked and ashamed in a garden. Do you see it's the statement? This is the way humanity is. And this is the important way to read. I'm going to start, I'm going to start the process of winding down because um, it's past 12, and you're all aware of that because I've just told you. Um, but uh, this is the point of these chapters. The point of these chapters is not, is Genesis 1 literal? That's not the point. Now, we can argue about that all day, and I'll happily do that, but it's not the main point of the text. It's not the main point of the text, whether Adam and Eve did something, whether they, first of all, were literal people, and secondly, did they do something that just has an effect on me today, is not the main point of the text. The main point of the text is to help us to see, is to help us to recognize, oh yeah, humanity is in a right old state, isn't it? is to recognize in the stories our story. To recognize in Adam and Eve's disobedience of God, oh yeah, that is so what I'm like. I'm so quick to not listen to Jesus and to go my own way. To recognize in Cain and Abel, not just wasn't Cain a silly old what's it, um, for murdering his brother. The point of the story isn't that. The point of the story is more than that. The point of the story is, oh my gosh, I have that stuff in me, don't I? I've got that hatred in me. I've got that jealousy in me. I've got the seed of that stuff in me. I've got this kind of, this tendency to escalate things, this tendency to hurt people, this tendency to make it all about me, this tendency towards jealousy. Um, and that's, that's the point of these stories. Does that make sense? The whole um, of Genesis 1 to 11 doesn't get to the people of God. It's just about the whole of the world as a thing. Does that make sense? This isn't, this isn't one group of, in other words, this isn't the story of one group of people. This is the story of the world as we know it. And this is who we are. Left on our own, we get this cycle, this downward spiral, um, this downward descent towards violence, towards craziness, and we need help from it. And so the story um, kind of reaches at some point um, at Genesis 11, where there's this tower built, and a bunch of people gather together, and they're like, hey, yeah, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's be, let's be the big cheeses. Uh. Um, despite the fact that everyone lives there, so it's like, who are you trying to be famous with? Uh, you're all here. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, but they, they build this massive tower because they think, hey, then God will really notice us. There's this little line where it says, God came down to see the tower, as if they thought it was really big, but God couldn't see it. <laughs> it's like, let me just, oh yeah, you've built a little tower. That's cute. Um, and, and, and God's like, and, and then God's, um, God's judgment on them is, okay, I'm going to separate you and spread you out over the face of the earth. Um, and then there's this kind of family tree that goes down from that moment and leads us into Genesis chapter 12, which is where Nigel's going to pick up on. But here's, here's the point. Here's the point. This is our story. And Torah, the whole rest of the book, the whole rest of the Bible, will only make sense if we are willing to acknowledge that Adam and Eve is us. That Cain and Abel, or more particularly, no, both Cain and Abel, is us to some degree. 
that all of us suffer the pain of these texts. All of us know what it's like to live uh, in some kind of pain and oppression when someone has wronged you, when someone has hurt you. All of us live with the pain um, of these texts, of, the, of these situations. But also, it's inviting us to see that all of us are complicit in the brokenness of the world. The danger with the doctrine of original sin that the church has held for a long time is that we think Adam was the problem. And then from then, all of us are kind of, we're just born into it, there's nothing we can do. Um, Does that make sense? What this text is inviting us to see is, no, 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 no. We are all complicit in this. Let me take a couple of examples. Um, It's easy to blame someone else, but all of us, by our shopping habits either perpetuate or fight against systems that enslave and hurt other people. Agreed? And all of us have made shopping decisions that somewhere down the line have hurt someone, have kept someone in a stinking rubbish job or even in slavery. Or take another example, uh, another equally extreme one, is the massive, massive thing of internet porn at the moment. Massive, massive deal. Uh, and, and we can see ourselves as victims of that, that there's just this thing, and it's there, and it's easy to get to, whatever. But the truth is, is that the way funding works on the internet is by clicks, and by advertising and by clicks. So actually, when we click through things on the internet, in fact, not just porn, anything, anything that degrades and belittles people, anything that uh, puts people down, we're actually keeping those websites and those people and those systems in business. Does that make sense? And this is what this is inviting us to see, is, oh my gosh, I'm complicit. I'm a part of this. These attitudes are in me, and I need rescue. I need a savior, and we need a savior. So, where this has gotten us to, where Genesis 1 to 11 gets us to, is look how crazy we are. Look how terrible things go without God. But then within that, there's these little threads that God hasn't given up, that God is doing something. So you get this little thread, like God makes a covenant with Noah, where he says, I know, I know that this isn't going to change things, but I promise I'm going to act in mercy. I'm never going to wipe you all out again. And he gives the rainbow. Isn't that lovely? God's first covenant wasn't with believers. It was just with the world. So nice, isn't it? God's first covenant was with everyone, was with the world. He actually made it with the land, which is just incredible. And there's these other themes cutting through, like the promise of rest, like um, this idea of good and bad, and humans seem to keep doing good, but God just keeps, uh, keep doing bad. Humans just keep doing bad, but God just keeps doing good. So he knits clothes um, for, for Adam and Eve, and he gives, puts the mark on Cain, and he blesses Noah and his family. Um, and, and even from the Tower of Babel, this kind of epitome of human pride and arrogance, um, not that any of you ever suffer from that um, ailment. I do, all the time, but then with good reason. Um, that was a funny bellow. That's good. Um, uh, but, then, but then even within that, there's this family tree that goes off, and we meet a guy called Terah, who has a son called Abraham. And the question comes up, what is God going to do about it? Because he is going to do something about it. And that's what the rest of the Torah will teach us. Isn't that cool? Do you all feel thoroughly rebuked and ashamed? 
Well, you shouldn't, because everyone's in the same boat. We're just <laughs> it's just about admitting, hey, we're on this journey. We need rescue. Amen.